Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's Autism Science Foundation Weekly Science Podcast. I was so excited to meet people at INSTAR this week that listened to this podcast. I really appreciate your comments. If there's anything you want to hear more of, less of, or change, let me know. This could be anything from the pace of my talking to adding interviews. Now, adding interviews of scientists is something I try to do all the time. So if you're willing to be interviewed, email me. For this week's podcast, I wanted to report back on the International Society for Autism Research. However, I want to focus on one area, technology. Why? Well, first, it's incredibly interesting. But second, I didn't really see many other outlets report back on it. So I thought I'd share some observations. You guys can probably get a more comprehensive summary of the keynotes and even important presentations that I missed by Spectrum News. They had lots of people there to fill you in on what happened at multiple sessions. So I'll fill you in on something that really hasn't been mentioned that much, technology. At INSTAR, there were presentations, posters, as well as a tech demo session where researchers could show off what they were working on. When I stepped back, I can break down everything I saw across the different technologies based on their purpose. So different technologies may have different purposes. So the first was assessment or diagnosis. This was in both posters and presentations. For example, some new technologies are using regular cameras found in an iPad or an iPhone to create 3D representations of facial expressions. Bob Schultz at Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania presented on this. He was able to show that possibly synchrony, which is the reciprocal mimicking of facial expressions in real time or close together, may actually be a biomarker. Can these kind of technologies make diagnosis faster? Can you videotape someone and then send that videotape to a clinician to have them analyze it or even have some sort of computer automated algorithm of different facial expressions, of behaviors, of different symptoms? Can that be automated? It's very exciting, but it has a drawback. It may potentially separate people from actual face-to-face clinicians. So people are thinking about them as screening tools or diagnostic aids. And these things can be anything from gaze finder to Cognoa. As I mentioned earlier, they can be used as a diagnostic aid. And right now, they shouldn't be used to replace a diagnosis. So they're perfect for research settings. One thing of interest is how do different interventions affect things like synchrony or eye gaze? And can that be detected using cameras that are cheap and easy to use? Can someone track eye movement as a measure of an outcome? What about gross motor movement? These include stereotypies and natural settings to understand what's going on in real life, not just the clinic. Now, another use is to better quantify autism symptoms for more focused interventions. These include things like abnormal gait, imitation, And what are the individually based spectrum of strengths, abilities, and disabilities that can be collected regularly, automated, quantified, and then targeted? Think about it. Now, most measures are clinician observation, which is once in a clinic or parent or teacher reported, which is great and important, but not necessarily precise across time. And it needs to be done once or a few times in certain settings. 
This would in fact augment the data collection so that observations could be made across different settings and at multiple time points. These sorts of measurements through different technologies, be it wearables or cameras or biosensors, can better identify some features that may be missed elsewhere. Another purpose is predictive, and this is the sort of data that Matt Goodwin from Northeastern University presented. Now, these are different markers that can be tracked technologically, like blood pressure, heart rate, and other things, to predict certain behaviors. For example, meltdowns or even seizures, that would be revolutionary. The question is, can some of the wearable devices help predict certain events and in what settings? The data is preliminary but promising. I want to thank Matt Goodwin, who's been working in this field for years and years and years, and he's also one of the most collaborative researchers I know. Another one, which I'm sure is incredibly interesting, is interventions. And these include things like virtual reality to deliver trainings on safety, learning to cross the street, and even to handle police interaction. In an ideal world, every police officer would be trained to do this, but you know, we don't live in a perfect world. So sometimes we have to prepare people with autism. Now this is done through this virtual reality headset. My husband has one of these, so I've been lucky enough to use it. Because, you know, who doesn't need a $1,000 piece of equipment that most people will use twice a year sitting around your house? I'm desperate for this dumb thing to be used for something good. So I was thrilled that someone is creating programs to immerse people with autism into a setting that is real as possible without any of the real world dangers that they will encounter. This way they can practice in a setting as many times as they want from the safety and comfort of their home. This doesn't replace, but actually prepares for real-world situations. Many of you may also have remembered the podcast I did a couple of weeks ago about Google Glass. It's not perfect, but I do love how anything involving Google or Apple that makes a ton of money can be used for good purposes. There were also a bunch of interactive robots that can be used for intervention. And these robots actually look like the robots you imagine in on the Jetsons, So who remembers the Jetsons, by the way, where they have legs and a head and can talk to mimic social situations and ease anxiety. They looked like robots and then they actually looked like games. One of these robots were actually lighted cubes that help in a very rudimentary way, but in also a fundamental way to help people understand social interactions. The cubes light up in ways that teach fundamentals of things like social approach and avoidance. They're pretty remarkable and very interactive. And I'm sure right now they're not too expensive, but I didn't ask. They're only research ready now. I'm also putting augmentative and alternative communication devices in here. They need improvement, they need to be durable, and they need to be responsive to the individual, and they need to be cheap and accessible across the world. The final thing was technology to reach people remotely, and they can be interventions, they can be diagnostic methods, um, but mainly they're used for delivery of care. The first is Baby Navigator. This is Amy Weatherby's project where she has videos of kids who don't have autism and those who do have autism all the way as early as 16 months so parents can see really early on if they feel like there's something not right with their child what exactly they need to be looking for. There were also remote training tools for professional development. 
So getting stuff to families is amazing and of high importance, and I'll talk to that in a minute. But what about how do you train people to treat families with autism in places like Tanzania or even Antelope, Oregon? Wild Wild Country fans will appreciate the Antelope, Oregon reference. And as an aside, I visited Antelope, and it's just as remote as it is in the documentary and just the same. There are probably no doctors out there or no clinicians that know a thing about autism, but I bet you there are kids with autism out there. And so it's important for doctors to have a way to train each other and to consult. The next one I wanted to talk about was telehealth. This includes interactive training of service providers by researchers or training of parents or caregivers by service providers. This can be live with a little bug in the ear or even done at each session. Parents like this. It can be done in the home. It's cheaper than going to the clinic, and it's a way to do different sessions around the house where the child normally is. It usually involves like a Skype session or a Google Hangout session where the clinician or the researcher or the parent can see each other in real time and talk to each other in real time. And also, there's something called ECHO, which was mentioned a few times around the meeting, This is a system where clinicians can talk to each other about challenging cases. This is kind of like a hub and spoke model where the hub are the clinical experts and the spoke are clinicians that really don't know anything in Antelope, Oregon, in Tanzania. Maybe they know a little bit and maybe they have a complicated case. For example, there was a whole session in one of the final panels of the day organized by Shafali Jesti. This panel was given by Alex Kolovzon, but it really focused on kids with Phelan McDermott syndrome. And this is a particular genetic mutation on chromosome 22. This is a pretty rare condition. So it's probably not feasible for families who have it to all be living where there are clinical care sites like New York. So this allows doctors from New York who know a lot about Phelan McDermott to consult with other doctors who are seeing kids in places like Antelope, Oregon. Well, of course, parents have to consent to all this, but it has been really, really helpful. One problem is parents can use their iPads or iPhones. Not everybody has an iPad or an iPhone. Not everybody has even internet access. And not everybody who has internet access is particularly savvy. So this may still apply to higher SES families, and we need a way to reach those with low socioeconomic status. But in some cases, this is the only option. Researchers are starting to be creative and flexible in ways in which access is an issue. I kind of think of the ECHO program as training the Doc Bakers. Remember Doc Baker from Little House on the Prairie? Well, what if Doc Baker had a case of autism? He was neither trained nor knowledgeable. This is how we train the Doc Bakers. Not that there's anything wrong with a Doc Baker. Doc Baker was treating Mary for scarlet fever. I think Doc Baker was the local dentist. But Doc Baker also knew when someone needed to see an expert. These interventions are also being moved past the pilot stage into clinical trials, which is great. There was a whole session, again, at the very end of the last day that had to do with using these technologies to deliver interventions or to better monitor people in clinical trials. This is probably just a smidgen of all the things that were going on with technology right now, but it is a pretty good representation of things that were shown at the International Society of Autism Research. If you presented something and I missed it, I'm sorry. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.